thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So we continue our study of the book of Numbers, and tonight we're going to be talking about chapters 4 through 6. The, the Israelites are still at Mount Sinai, and they're still going through the preparations to their departure. To their departure. And as you read these chapters, I hope you're struck by the level of details that the Lord himself goes through. I hope you're struck by the fact that God does like planning and that he really is interested in every little aspect of the plan and that there is nothing in your life, not even the smallest activity you can think of, that he is not interested in. And that's essentially developing the quality of living in the presence of God. He is absolutely interested in every one of your activity, from, the, from how long you take to take a shower, to how much time you spend in front of your mirror, to how often you speak on the phone, to how many texts you send. Each and every one of these little, seemingly insignificant activities, he is very, very, very intensely interested in. I don't want you to, to think that he is interested in passing. He's intensely interested in. Because every one of these activities that you and I perform are either for our salvation or for our damnation. That's why he's intensely interested in everything you do. And the more you come to understand that and live in His presence every single moment of your life, the quicker you're able to do what Jesus wants us to do, which is imitate Him. And as He told His disciples in the Gospel of St. John, my food, it's a striking statement, uh, saying of our Lord, my food is to do the will of my Father. My food especially in the season of Lent, my food is to do the will of my Father. That's what gives him sustenance. To do the will of the Father. And he didn't mean it in only the big things, he meant it even in the smallest things. So the quicker you and I do the will of the Father, not our will, the will of the Father, 
the quicker we're able to imitate Christ. But unless we believe that God the Father is intensely interested in every single little detail, even the seemingly insignificant ones of our lives, how could we do his will? We, in the extreme, we become like the, you know, the tourist Catholics, right? Baptism, First Communion, uh, marriage, uh, funerals, Right? Big ticket events in our lives we consider, we deem important enough to bring to the attention of God, but the rest of it, we do it on our own. So the, the, the training for all of us, and this is Lent, Lent helps us in doing this, is to, is to understand that during our day, during our day, everything we do is a prayer. This is how St. Paul says, pray always. So you're at work, you're at university, you're at home, wherever you may be, something comes to you, something unexpected. Train yourself to react, not to the person in front of you, but to God the Father. Inwardly, when you're in conversation with someone, you are in conversation with God. Because through this person, this event, this phone call, through whatever is happening to you right there and then, God is talking to you. God is in conversation with you. And if you react with anger, with irritation, with impatience, if you react with a lack of charity, a lack of love towards a person, you're actually reacting this way to God the Father. The quicker you can get into that mode, the quicker you do God's will. You understand Francis, St. Francis of Assisi's approach to life, St. Teresa, Little Child Jesus, St. Um, St. Jose Maria Escriva. All of the saints have constantly reminded us that we are in conversation with God through all the people that he put in our life. That's essentially, if, if nothing else, reading the book of Numbers, even if you don't figure out all the details and understand what is going on, even if when, and, and, and when you read these chapters, as, as we're going to talk about it tonight, there are certain things that will shock you, that will surprise you, that will, that will seem so strange. And all these emotions that you might go through are a way for you to realize that a relationship with God is a complex thing that requires attention, effort, dedication on your part, my part, all the days of our lives. That's what the book of Numbers is showing us tonight. And so tonight there are three aspects we're going to look at. As I said earlier, they are making ready to leave. First, there was a census. And the census was in two parts. first census was for all the tribes except the Levites. And they were accounted for for the purpose of war. So God is making it really, really clear to them that it is not going to be a cakewalk. You're not going to be able to go and overtake these people straight out. There is going to be war. Secondly, there was a census done to the Levites, who are, as you know, the priestly order. They're the ones who are responsible for the temple. And that happened in the first three chapters. Now, in the next three chapters, God is going to explain, again, in, in the minutest details, how the tent, the tabernacle, will be brought down and set up. Who will carry it and what will happen. That's in chapter 4.
Then in chapter 5, he talks about the need to separate all those who suffer from impurity, to put them outside the, t- the camp as the camp is being brought, as the camp starts to move and then camp um, uh, arrives at any, at any location where they're going to settle. And then he speaks about something peculiar, which is the Nazarite vow, the temporary Nazarite vow, and what is required to do in case it is broken. So effectively, the thread, the common thread through all three chapters is impurities. Impurity. So God is telling them, when you set out on this journey, you need to be in a state of purity. Now, obviously, this is not sanctifying grace we're talking about here, but the analogous in the material word to what sanctifying grace will be for us. That suggests, or should suggest to all of us, that before, or, or the, the fruits, the fruits of your labor, the fruits of your daily labor, what you do at work, your studies, what you do at home, most importantly, what you do in your family, is really dependent on your state of grace. The more you can keep yourself in a state of grace, the greater the fruits are going to be of your labor. So God is directly and intensely interested in the details of your lives to fructify them. And to that degree that you are able to cooperate with Him by recognizing Him in the events of your day and week, and by living faithful in His presence, to that degree, will your work be fruitful? Because He is the one who does it, not you. Not you. Not too long ago, um, at St. Mary's Day, Father Rich in Escondido has now started perpetual adoration, just as we have here in Our Lady of Grace. And and St. Mary's is pretty close to our home, so over the period of two months that this has started, um, we've gone as a we've got we we got into the habit as a family, my wife, my seven children, and I to go to the Blessed Sacrament and visit our Lord. And it started with um, a short prayer after Mass whenever we attended the liturgy over there. And then it became and turned into well, why don't we just go to the to the Blessed Sacrament? Where we just go and drive and stop by and come visit the Lord. And uh, about two weeks ago, we went there. And we spent um, one hour. Now, I'm talking about kids who are 7, 8, 9, 10, 12, and teenagers. And I commented out, I told my wife on the way out, well, obviously we spent an hour and um, we were very happy that our children were able to sit quietly for an hour before the Lord. And I told her, you, you know, how did we do this? Well, obviously... We have no clue how we do this because we, we can't do this, right? So all that we did was remove some of the obstacles and make it possible for God to act because it's his work, it's not mine. Some of my kids actually, 10 years old, are now doing the fasting I told you about from midnight to noon, no water, no food, and cutting out a whole bunch of stuff. And the 10-year-old commented a couple, uh, four days ago, she said, actually, it's actually not very hard. Now, again, how is that possible? It isn't something that I can make happen in a 10-year-old for her to say of a fast such as this one. And she's got a sweet tooth, this one. 
<laughs> She's got a sweet tooth. For her to say it was actually not very hard. I can't make that happen. I don't have that. I, I, there, there's nothing I can do to make this happen. But when we open the door to God and the Holy Spirit, and we make it possible to remove the obstacles, He takes care of the rest. The biggest lie that the world wants us to believe is that our faith is insignificant. That our faith has no bearing on our lives. And we caught to we caught we were caught into this. We bought in it. Right? So always remember this. All you gotta do is remove some of the obstacles. God will do the rest. He will bless you and bless your families. And take care of so many issues that you thought are impossible to take care of. Just if you are willing to open. And how do you do that? How do you do that? How do you surrender? A guy's talking to you and he irritates you. So what do you do? You realize this is God talking to you. Yes, thank God for it. And then you realize this is God talking to you. So you rain down as much as you can on your irritation, right? Now you're doing the work of the Father. Yeah, there's no, there's no point in saying rosaries and doing to daily mass and doing all the spiritual stuff if, if, if when somebody comes and irritates you, you behave like a pagan. A pagan. Do I have an accent? You know, I don't like people with accents, I'm telling you. People with accents, I don't know what to do with them. Yes. Pagan. You behave like, like one out there who never go to Mass, who never received was nothing. Just behave like him. What does that suggest? All the graces are falling on a hard soil, a, a soil as hard as cement, that it refuses the graces to come through. There is no fruit that can grow, right? Yeah, see, I do understand what you're saying, but I want to take that language one step forward. Because the business of compromise has a little bit of a diplomatic bent to it, which is nice. But it's a question of love, you see. When, when somebody loves, it's not about a compromise anymore. It's about pleasing the other. You see, when some, if you hear parents or someone tell you, love is about compromise, true, but they're missing the boat. Jesus did not compromise on the cross, did he? Okay, that's the... So, when God comes to you, knocks on your door, and bugs you through somebody, it's not a question of compromise. It's a question of giving and joyfully giving. When we do that, watch the graces flowing into your family. Unbelievable. Just those little things. That's why St. Teresa, little child Jesus, is a doctor of the church. She wrote one small book. But is it so rich, the intuition she had about so, remember, there's no point in doing masses and all. If, if all you're doing all this and somebody bugs you, you're not able to forgive, you're not able to smile at that person, you speak harshly to him, you have no patience, you have no sense of humility, no willingness to bend your neck. The graces are flowing, but they are bouncing back. You understand? And so this is what God wants to teach them. If you keep that in mind, when we go through these chapters, you will not be as shocked by what you see. Because some of the stuff is really shocking. Right? So, chapter 4. In chapter 4, God is focusing on the three clans, if you will, within the Levites. All right? There is the Gershonites. So, essentially, you go back to Levi, 400 years back. 
Levi had three sons, Gershon, um, Korah, and, and, and I had actually spent a little, quite a bit of time constructing the whole thing, and I forgot to bring it over. So, uh, what is the name of his, the third son? The Merorite, right? Yeah, very good. So the Gershonite, the Korahite, and the Merorite. These are the three clans that go back up to Levi. And to each is assigned a specific task in the whole construction of the, the, of the tabernacle. Now, the really interesting thing, I'm just going to read this to you because it's very strong. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take a census of the sons of Kohath. So the Kohathite. Kohath is the second son, not the first. Gershon is the first. As usual... Right, the, the eldest is not the one chosen to do the most important task. Kohath, from among the son of Levi, by their families in the father's house, from 30 years old up to 50 years old, all who can enter the service to do the work in a tent of meeting. These men are going to do the work in a tent of meeting, but they're not necessarily priests. You understand? So here we find already the notion of a brother. Right, the, the, the lay brother or the brother we have in monasteries, we find that notion right here because they're going to do a work around the tent, but they're, they're not necessarily priests. You understand? Deacon, you have to a certain degree too. Yes, deacon. So, this is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tent of the meeting, the most holy things. So they're responsible for moving the most holy things. That's their duty. Move it. Just move it. They're the movers. They can't handle them. The priests will have to handle them. They cannot. Now, l- listen carefully how difficult this is. When the camp is to set out, Aaron and his sons shall go in and take down the veil of the screen. Why Aaron and his sons? Because they're the priests. They will go in and take down the veil. The veil hides what? The Holy of Holies, where you have the ark. Right Now, and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then there's a description. They shall put on a covering of goatskin and spread over the cloth, olive blue, and put up, and, and shall put all its poles, etc., etc. So there's a whole description of what they have to do. They're the ones who go in and cover everything. Not the Kohathites. And God says, verse 15, And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all is furnishing the sanctuary, as the camp sets out after the sons... After that, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things, lest they die. So, put yourself in the shoes of the sons of Levi. When they were in Egypt, they owned land and property, like all the other Israelites. They come out, the golden calf takes place, and now they are the priests, and they're the ones responsible for moving the holy things. And they have to depend on what others give them for their living. So you're not supposed to try to become a millionaire when you are now part of the tribe of Levi. So there is a restriction on their ambitions. They didn't ask for this. They did not ask for this. That's what God did. He called them to do that, even though that was not part of their plans. Not only that, what they're carrying is worse than carrying radioactive material. I mean, with radioactive material, if you cover yourself appropriately, you can do it safely. Here, it doesn't matter how well you're covered. 
You touch, you, you, you touch it, you're dead. I mean, with a God like that, who needs enemies? Now, I want you for a minute to imagine you're one of them. Here are all the holy things, and you are a mover. You have to carry them. How would you feel about that? You feel honored? Well, what is God doing? Well, what's, what's going on here? Pardon? Teaching them reverence. Yes, true. But f- fundamentally, when you carry these things, you're in a desert, right? You don't know what kind of terrain you're going to hit. I mean, you're not on, on, on the 15, right? Smooth and straight, and you can see you're in the wilderness, the rocks and mountains, and uh, there is no, you know, paved road. You don't know what you're going to deal with. God didn't say, if they touch it on purpose. Do you understand that? He didn't say, right, did he? He didn't say, if they touch it on purpose. If they touch it. You're going on, this, on, on the road, and, and there's a bump, and you touch it. What happens? You're dead. You didn't intend on touching it. But you did. You're dead. Do you understand that? Okay, so what is God up to? Who can protect you from this? The answer is obvious. Not the priest. No, he can't protect you. God. So literally, your life is in... Okay. What do you have to do in this specific instance? You have to believe in Him... You have to trust Him, and you have to walk with Him. Every step of the way, literally. Do you understand? Mm-hmm. So you see, we stand in front of this text, and there's one of two reactions. Reaction number one, that stems from the hardness of our heart. What kind of... This is crazy. Right? How could God do some, such a thing? That makes no sense. Etc., etc. We rebel. And remember what I told you, our fallen nature has this tendency. We tend to rebellion immediately. That's the first thing that comes to mind. I don't understand, I'm shocked, I don't accept what is this, etc., etc., right? Then there's the second one. When you're in the presence of God, and you're in conversation with Him, and you believe He is a loving Father who really wants it. So, God can do all things. But if He can do all things, what is He doing here? He says... You believe in me, you trust me, you rely on me, and you love me, and I'll take care of everything for you. It doesn't take away from what was said earlier. The priests have to do what they have to do. And you need to be planning this very, very carefully. You have to exercise human wisdom to make it possible to transport the holy things in such a way that no one touches them. So you have to exercise. God expects you to use your mind to its fullest, to call upon people who know what they're doing, to have expertise in this, so that you can do what you have to do. But after you trust Him, not before or as a substitute of your trust in Him. You understand? So even at work, if you are engaged in a project, if you're working on a task, and if, you, if all you're thinking about, and all, your entire focus is what this task requires and the people around you are asking, you're missing the point. Because the fundamental point, first and foremost, is what does God intend with this? First. And then you move on to the next. Imagine if companies these days were to pray before starting a project. 
or before making an important decision or before creating a budget. Imagine if they really truly involved God in the decisions, what kind of world we would be living in and how different this world would be. Okay. So that's what they're supposed to do. This is their calling and they need to call them. They're not only once as he said that they would die. Again, watch this. Verse 18, let not the tribe of the families of the Kohathites be destroyed from among the Levites, but deal thus with them that they may live and not die when they come near to the most holy things. Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint them each to his task and to his burden, but they shall not go in to look upon the holy things even for a moment lest they die. So three times there is this notion of be careful or else they will die. So even the priests themselves cannot see the holy things. So when they take the veil down, they walk forward with it and lay it on top of the holy things. It's a dangerous operation. It is not easy. What is it suggesting? It's suggesting how we all ought to consider any object consecrated to God's use. Because back then they had a theophany, they had a presence of God. They did not have the substantial presence of God amongst them, as we do today in our churches. As we do in our churches. Um, I teach my children not to step on a sanctuary, ever. I need them to understand the holiness of the church. I teach them when they were sitting on the benches, we never cross our legs. We are not sitting amongst equal for us to feel so comfortable as to cross our legs. We're sitting in God's presence. Let's have the proper attitude. I teach them never to speak in church. Even to say hello. That is inappropriate. This should be a place where only holy things are being said. We can, go, we can wait till we go outside to say hello. Why? I want them to understand the holiness of the church. That is so important for us. As, because if we don't understand the holiness of something we can see, feel, touch... How can we really truly understand the holiness of God or heaven and take these matters seriously? It's important. All right. So the rest, the, the Gershonite and the Merorite have other duties and tasks surrounding, about, uh, surrounding the, 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 concerning the outer objects of the tent. And likewise, they have to perform them according to the um, order given to them by the priests. So the priests are the one in charge of everything. They're the one responsible for making this whole sequence happen. But it is God that laid out for them specifically. And he tells them exactly how he wants it to be executed. And in our lives, it is supposed to be the same way. When we open ourselves to God, he is the one who shows us what he wants done and how he wants it done. Very good. Let's move on to chapter 5. Now, chapter 5 has deals specifically with defilement. Now, the Lord said to Moses, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper and everyone having a discharge and everyone that is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so and drove them outside the camp. So, for some, it was temporary. For others, it could be permanent. So, if you are a leper, you could not live in the camp. You had to live outside the camp. 
if you had a bloody discharge, either because of a wound or because of the natural uh, cycles of women, you had to be out of the camp. But you can come back after. And if you touched the dead, you were also essentially sent outside the camp. Remember that in ancient times, blood, life was seen in the blood. And therefore, any time blood was lost, it was considered to be a loss of life. And hence, you're getting closer to the dead. And obviously, a dead body corrupts and hence it is unclean. Hence, any time this was, seen, this was um, uh, practiced, it was viewed as a sense of uncleanness because you're touching something that is fundamentally um, closer to dead. Now, notice, God, in His relationship with His people, takes them where they are at. God is not interested in scientific discoveries as much as He is in making us understand what kind of relationship we have to have with Him. Obviously, today, our understandings of what is clean and unclean has vastly changed, and for the better. Hence, these types of restrictions do not apply in a church, because our understanding has changed. Nevertheless, the principle that God will reach us at the level that we are at, not at the ideal level. So in God's plan, there's always plan A, the way He would have liked to talk to us, which was the way He talked to Adam and Eve in the garden. But then when original sin happened, man's mind was obscured. Man couldn't understand the thing of God as easily as Adam and Eve did. What did God do? He adapted his language to our condition. So you need to understand that about Scripture. It isn't that God is confirming that, let's say, a woman going through her normal cycle is unclean. That is not at all his perception. But because this, this is what they believe back then, and that was a, it was a belief shared by all these cultures. The Israelites weren't the only one. Um, yeah, well, be it as it may, back then they didn't understand in any other way. Right? Remember, we're talking about a civilization that didn't have an understanding of the, the, the way blood circulated in the body. There is no medical understanding of any of it. They perceived it this way. God essentially is trying to teach them first and foremost about himself. Using a language they could understand. Uh, when, when they asked Jesus, why is it that Moses permitted us to divorce our wives? Jesus answered, because of the hardness of your heart. In other words, the law of divorce given by Moses was tailored to the hardness of the heart. You can see, therefore, that God was adapting his approach to where people were at, because he's trying to guide them. And so it is with us. So it is with us today. So many of us have certain behaviors that are there by habit, and God is patient. God waits. And one day he reveals to us that this behavior is inappropriate, and he then gives us the strength to change. The same way, you understand? That's the, what we call the divine pedagogy. God as the teacher, the divine teacher, instructing us in all things. Now obviously, we can speed up the process by our studies, by our humility, by our acts of mercy, by our openness to God's will in our lives, we can speed that process. And we can deepen our knowledge of Him, and we can deepen our familiarity with His ways, 
and therefore grow in holiness and grow in glory. That's why Jesus said, follow me, I will lead you to the truth, and the truth will set you free. He always knew that we had to know the truth to be set free. And so many of us simply resist to know the truth. How do we resist? More often than than not, this way. Um, You said, or let's say I said to you that that, uh, Ramsey is bald. I said it. Now you come to me and say, did you say that Ramsey is bald? Now, I've seen Ramzan, he's obviously not bald. He has a long way to go. And, and, uh, and then I say, well, well, not really. I said it. You know I said it, but I said not really. But, but you said it, Ramsey was bald. But really, this is not what I meant. What am I doing when I do this? What, I'm not owning up to it, right? I'm not being forthcoming. I'm not being humble. I'm refusing to admit that I committed a fault. I am unwilling to... Uh, accept correction, I'm hardening my heart. I'm hardening my heart. And I'm causing you pain, I'm causing you sorrow, and I'm having an argument with you. So when I behave this way, I'm showing, remember, who am I behaving with this way? Not just you, God the Father. I'm behaving with God the Father this way. I'm I'm arguing with Him. The woman you put in in the garden, she's the one who made me do it, I didn't do it. You see that? Yeah, yeah. Be mindful of these little things. They're not so little. They're not so little. They're very important. So, God tells them you must keep the, 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 the camp clean. So that's, you can see now the extension. It's an extension of the tabernacle. Notice, he doesn't say, if I find... Somebody unclean in your camp, you all die. It doesn't say that. The punishment associated with someone unclean in the camp is not deadly. It is deadly if they were to touch the holy things. But not deadly if one of them is unclean in the camp. They have to drive him out. But it's not deadly. You can see, therefore, God's intent. In the church, from the sanctuary on out, only Holy things should be here. You and I, when we enter this church, should be in a state of grace. So, you can't tell me you take God seriously. You cannot tell me. You'll try, I know. But you're not yet at the point of taking God seriously if you do not thrive to go to confession weekly. Simple as that. If you're not working on going to confession weekly, you're not taking God seriously. Because you're saying it's okay for me to come to, to Mass with all the venial sins and all, all the imperfections. Right? I'm entering this camp and I'm not working, I'm not trying to be as clean as I can be. Do you understand? God wishes for the camp to be clean. So whereas back then it was only material things, because it was only a symbol of sin, today it's the real thing. It is no longer a question of whether you have you know, a bloody discharge or you're a leper or any of that. Right? Whether you're a leper or not, you can enter the church. It's a matter of internal disposition, what is happening in your soul. And if you think you don't need to go to confession every week, I'll tell you right now, you are suffering from an acute case of pride. Acute. 
that's the reality here. This is a, as, very, very simple. Now, some of you may not be able to go, but if you're not yearning and trying and willing and doing everything you can to go to confession every week, you're suffering from an acute case of pride. Remember that. So, then the focus switches to this. Say to the people of Israel, verse 6, When a man and a woman commits any of the sins that men commit in breaking, by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person is guilty, he shall confess his sins which he has committed, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it. Adding a fifth to it. So if anybody who committed a sin, material sin again, he will make full restitution. He confesses sin. Notice confession was already in God's plan right back then. He has to confess his sins and make restitution, adding one-fifth to it. As part of, what is that one-fifth? Restitution is just giving back what you owe. One-fifth is part of your penance. Yeah? Then the chapter switches to something very different. Verse 12, say to the people of Israel, if any man's wife goes astray and acts unfaithfully against him, if a man lies with her kernelly and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband and she's undetected though she has defiled herself and there is no witness against her since she was not taken in the act, and if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he is jealous of his wife though she has not defiled herself, Peculiar thing. Of all the possible sins, God picks this one. The case is this. Suppose a woman did, uh, um, a married woman did lie on another man. And the husband has no way of proving it. Or suppose that the man is jealous. His wife committed no such thing, but he's jealous of her. Then God is dealing with it right here. I want you to just... Keep that in mind. Why is God dealing with that one peculiar event across all the other ones that could have happened? Okay. Now, here's what has to happen. The man shall bring his wife to the priest and bring the offering required of her, a tenth of an ephah of barley meal, only barley. He shall pour no oil upon it and put no frankincense on it, for it's a cereal offering of jealousy, a cereal offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. Okay. Now, the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord, and the priest shall take holy water. Interesting, huh? Holy water. Words used straight out from the book of Numbers. Holy water. In an earthen vessel, and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle, which is therefore holy ground. You know how in some shrines we take dust from the tomb of... Yeah, well, okay. Go back to the book of Numbers. We don't invent stuff in the Catholic Church. Okay. And so you take the dust, you take the water, and then uh, he put it into the water, and the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and unbind the hair of the woman's head and place in her hands a cereal's offering of remembrance, which is a cereal offering of... Okay, so she's holding now the, 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 the offering in her hand. In his hand, the priest shall have the water of bitterness that brings the curse. Then the priest shall make her... Take an oath, saying, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you've gone astray through your under, though you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself, and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, The Lord make you an execration and an, and, and, and an oath among your people when the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell. 
And may this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your body swell and your thigh fall away. And a woman shall say, Amen, Amen. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book and wash them off into the water of bitterness. And he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings the curse. And the water that brings the curse shall enter in her and cause bitter pain. And then he will take the offering from the woman's hand and shall wave the cereal offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the cereal offering as a memorial portion and burn it upon the altar. And then he will make the woman drink the water. Strange. So it's not very complicated, actually. So you show up with an offering of barley. Mm -hmm. The priest has to um, untie your hair, and then he takes some dust from the ground, put it into the holy water from an earthen, which is undefiled water, And then he makes you take this oath. It's a curse. And writes it down and washes the ink in the water and gives it to you to drink. And you drink it. It is a bitter water. And if if indeed the curse, if indeed the woman was unfaithful, then effectively the the effect of of that curse is sterility. She will not be able to bear children. But if she isn't, then she will bear a child not too long after. She will be blessed. Okay? Now, that kind of um, uh, ceremony was common in the ancient Near East and other places where they would perform it as a magical act. The notion was that the priest had that power in him to curse or to bless. Here, God is using the same sort of of, uh, ritual, if you will, that the Israelites would be used to but it is very, very clear that it is God who acts, not the priests. All right? Now, the question to all of us is, why this one particular sin? Of all the other things that could happen, why this one and why the woman? Right? Why the woman? I mean, we said there are two cases. A case where she is indeed unfaithful, and the case where she's not. And if she's not, she's still drinking the water. How come the guy doesn't get it? Right? Well, that's the wrong thinking. That's the hardness of our heart asking the question. If you recall, what are we talking about? We're talking about preparing to leave. And God is absolutely adamant about what? That the camp be clean. Now, typically, typically, what is the favorite image God uses to speak of his relationship with Israel? Marital. Marital. He is the husband. Israel is the... Okay. In this specific instance, therefore, through this particular case, God is instructing all of Israel that he is jealous and that he expects them to undergo some pain even if they don't deserve it and that if they are faithful to the covenant they will be blessed, and if they're not, they will be cursed. Of all the possible sins that can be committed, he selects this one specifically related to the, relating it to the camp for purposes of purity. Remember what St. Peter said about women married to husbands who are unbelievers. In the second letter, St. Peter is specific, and he tells these women, doesn't tell them, divorce your husband and leave. He says, by your prayers and suffering, he may be converted. Our hardness of heart says, what is it for me? 
right? God gave His only Son for us, right? So questions that can come to your mind, like why is the woman doing the... Remember, these are not biblical questions. These are questions from the world, especially when God is the author of it. We're all called to suffer for others, whether you're a woman or a man. You need to purify your conscience to think differently. God calls us all for acts of love. So this one particular woman whose husband is jealous, and unjustly so, will save him through her act of faithfulness. Do you understand? So God is always showing the two aspects. Remember, you know how earlier we talked about the guys who have the movers? Guess what? They're all men. The women are spared. But it doesn't even come to our mind to think once. And, how come it's the guys who, are, who get it and the women are spared? That doesn't come to mind. right? This, is just, this just shows how we must purify our thinking when it comes to the Lord. And never allow ourselves to introduce these foreign concepts into our conversation with God. So when you look at the entire scheme of things, the guys get it a lot worse because here, okay, what? In, in, if, if she's innocent, what happens to her? She has to drink a glass of bitter water. Water with dust and some ink. Okay? That's what happens to her. And then, she's blessed. The result of this, if she's innocent, is she's blessed. She's going to have a child. That's a blessing in God's eyes. Let's look at the guys. The guys are walking with the, with the holy things, and there's a bump in the road. There's no blessing there. They're zapped. They're gone. Who, who has the better portion? Now I ask you. You see? Do not allow the world, the devil, and the flesh to whisper in your ears when it comes to Scripture. Always hold fast to the notion that God the Father loves you. And proceed from there. So that's what happens. They must be purified. All right. The last part is God then moves on to talk about something even, in a sense, stranger, which is, which is the case of a temporary Nazarite. Now let's talk about a Nazarite. A Nazarite is a man or a woman, men and women, could do that. Where they take a vow, they take up a vow not to cut their hair, so their hair grows long, not to drink any wine and to abstain from food and, uh, I believe, also from sexual relations. There's a number of things they abstain from. They can take that vow permanently. So, you know, the notion that uh, being a, a consecrated religious, it goes all the way back there. We didn't invent that thing. They can, be, they can take it permanently or temporary. In, in some cases, it's because of a promise they made God. If you save my son, I'll take that vow. Right? And by the way, it is preserved in some of the um, Eastern cultures within the Catholic Church. You will see little kids walking around with long hair and dressed like St. Francis. Well, it's, it's essentially what the idea behind it is that they've dedicated this particular kid to a saint, vowing not to cut his hair, and uh, getting him to dress this way for a specific reason, maybe because he's sick or somehow. So this has been preserved 
throughout um, in, in the Catholic Church through some of these um, um, customs and traditions. Nevertheless, here in chapter um, 6, the conversation isn't about the, the, the Nazarite. It is about what happens when a Nazarite breaks his vows. Again, very peculiar. It's only about a Nazarite who broke his or her vows. Now, notice, the first chapter, chapter 4, was all about the, the way in which you must move the sanctuary. And what would happen if you do not move it according to God's plan. The second is about the lady. Amongst them, what happens? You must preserve purity in all cases. And the third now is about lady, lay folks again who decide to consecrate themselves to God and who break that vow. They have defiled the camp. And what must happen to them in this case? All right? So let's first understand that the temporary Nazarite was forbidden from imbibing wine or ale or any product of the vine. He couldn't cut his, he or she could not cut their hair, and they couldn't come into contact with a corpse. So again, very interesting. Suppose you're a Nazarite, you're a temporary Nazarite, took that vow, and you're walking in a camp, and a man, um, you're shaking hand with some man, and he just has a heart attack, and he dies right there and then. You broke your vow. You came into contact with a corpse. You broke your vow. You didn't intend on breaking your vow. But you just did. So, see, God, at the end of the day, is really interested in our holiness, right? And one area, as I told you earlier, where we excel is pride. And how do we know we have pride? Very, very easy. Somebody comes and talks to us, maybe a little rudely. Maybe criticizes us. Maybe says something about what we're doing. And we immediately flare. We flare up into self-righteousness. How could he? How should he? Uh, you know, who is she? Who does she think she is? Yada, 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 right? Of course, it doesn't happen to anybody here. And I think I've told you the story before about St. Charbel, who, uh, as a priest, was working with the field, with the other monks, and um, he, there was one particular monk who was very abrasive, and for some reason, Father Charbel irritated him. And at one point, he, he was in charge of the oven. Um, and uh, Father Sharbel was right there, and he told Father Sharbel that he's going to use him as wood for the fire. And obviously, he didn't mean it. He was just being exasperated, right? And Father Sharbel fell to his knees and said, May God give me the strength to obey you, brother. Um, at a, another point, there were a, a group of monks and brothers who are eating. It was during Lent. I don't, maybe not, because... Uh, I think Father Shabbat was already hermit, so as a hermit, he could only eat once a day. And so the Father Superior comes to check, to check, to check on them, and he says, where's, where's Father Shabbat? And I said, well, he's over there working. So he goes and sees Father Shabbat working with the olive trees, and he says, Father, have you eaten? He says, no, I have not. Why? Nobody called me. Did you eat yesterday? No. Why? Nobody called me. And the day before? No. So for three days straight, he didn't have a but because nobody called him to eat. So he did not eat. Another moment, this 
particular monk told Father Sharbel, he, he was again irritated. He says, why don't you go across and get me and get wood from over there? So there's a canyon and another hill. So at 9 o'clock in the evening, Father Superior is looking for Father Sharbel. You can find him anywhere. And about 9 or 10, Father Sharbel is coming back with wood that he brought from that hill over there. Now, the hardness of our heart says, well, that's silly. We immediately can rationalize why we shouldn't be doing this. We immediately rationalize why we shouldn't be that obedient. And especially when we are wronged. Especially when we are wrong. Especially when somebody says something to us where we know he's wrong and we're right. Oh boy, do we let him have it. Look at God. You're a Nazarite. You just happen to... Somebody dropped dead in your, 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 your wife, your, your child. They just died. You broke your vow. Just meditate on that. Think about that for a moment. Think about that. What God demands of us is obedience. Can we give him that obedience with love and cheerfulness and joy? Or when somebody comes and tells us something that is not pleasing to our ear, we make sure that God the Father has it. Because when we are yelling at this person, when we're responding back with irritation, when we're scoffing at him or her, we're doing all that to God the Father. But then we go on saying our rosaries every day and going to Mass every day and doing all these other things and thinking we're wonderful people and going to heaven straight away. We've already self-canonized ourselves. All right. Notice that the restrictions of the Nazarite, the Nazarite are more severe than that of the priest. So the Nazarite truly is closer to what God has in mind. So St. John the Baptist was a Nazarite, and we believe our Lord himself was a Nazarite. Okay? Well, actually, maybe not. Maybe not Jesus, because he drank from the wine. So he was not a temp- he was not permanent Nazarite, unless we can explain it differently. But Saint John was. So the priest may not partake of strong drink when he enters the sanctuary, but outside he is under no such restrictions. And um, the Nazarite is not even allowed to eat grapes, whereas the priest is allowed to do so. In regards to corpse contamination, the Nazarite more closely resembles the high priest, who also was forbidden to approach the dead, attend a funeral. Uh, approach the dead of his own immediate family. He can do that. We find that in Leviticus chapter 21, verse 11. Because he could not be unclean. Some other priest, but not the high priest. He could not approach the dead so that he would not be unclean. However, in regard to his unpolled hair, the Nazarite was different because not, not only he, he, no one else had that restriction that he could not cut his hair. The priest was forbidden from shaving his hair. Why do you think so? Why do you think he was forbidden from shaving his hair? Why was the priest forbidden from shaving his hair? Who shaved their hair? The Egyptians. Right? The Egyptians. So he was forbidden from shaving his hair, particularly because we had to cut that connection with Egypt. That's why he could not shave his hair. However, he was also not allowed to let it grow long. Whereas the Nazarite was required to do it. Remember the story of Samson, right? Right? How did Samson lose his strength? Right. And the magical understanding is that there was strength in his hair. But that's nonsense. He had no more strength in his hair than there is strength in my hair, or in Ramsey's hair for that matter. When his hair was cut, the fact that Samson, who was a judge, had long hair meant what? He was a... Nazarite. He had taken the Nazarite vow. When 
his hair was cut, what happened? He broke his vow. He broke the covenant. Hence, he lost his strength. You understand? Yes, there is. Yes, yes, yes. That's, that's the thing. There is. That's what this whole chapter is about what he must do. Right? And then and, and, and listen to this. We're getting to it in a minute. Um, so, the, the, really, the uniqueness of his uncut hair is the mark of the Nazarite and the part of him that is truly holy to judge by the treatment of the hair when a Nazarite period is accident, accidentally aborted or successfully terminated. So, wine, as I said, is forbidden. So, wine turns sour. He can't have vinegar. The grapes themselves, whether fresh or dry, even the non-juicy part of the grape, the seed and the skin. So, the interesting thing is that, uh, as an aside, the... Um, Old wine, the Hebrew word for old wine was shekar, which is probably coming from the Akkadian sikru or sikaru, which we still have in, in uh, for instance, in Lebanese for sakar, right? Which means to be, um, to, to, get, uh, to get drunk. But sikaru meant beer in Akkadian. Akkadian, right? It meant in Akkadia, which is in, near, in, a, in, a, in a Near East, Okay? It was a word for old. So beer was known, and it was also known that the uh, Philistines, which should not be confused with the Palestinians, completely different population, the Philistines were known carousers, huge parties in Canaan. Okay? So God is also preparing his people. Right? Now, you all know, I think I've told you this, that uh, being drunk... When somebody be, gets drunk, he or she has committed a mortal sin by being drunk. Mortal? Mortal. Drunkenness is a mortal sin. Why is that? Why is drunkenness a mortal sin? You're hurting your own body. Not, hurting your own body is not necessarily a sin. But it's, hurting your own body is not necessarily a sin. Is it over so, uh, and Let me just uh, deal with this. Hold on a second. St. Francis, for instance, when he had wounds, and he had worms walking in his wounds, he would not let anyone touch the, wound, the worms. But that doesn't mean he was committing a sin. He was, he was excessive, but that was not necessarily a sin. So that's not the reason. There is some truth to that, but not quite. By the way, when it comes to gluttony, St. Uh, Thomas Aquinas lists six different ways in which you can commit the sin of gluttony, two of which nobody here obviously commits. Number one, when you are waiting to eat and you're munching, mm-hmm. that's gluttony. Number two, when you, eat, <laughs> when you eat too quickly, when you eat fast, that's gluttony. And number three, obviously number three, when you do not stop eating when, you're, when you do not need any more food, that's gluttony. Right? But the munching one is obviously something nobody ever commits here. No, the reason why drunkenness is a sin is because when you're drunk, what do you lose? You lose the control, the faculty of your reason. And the reason and, and, and we are made in the image of God because of our reason. Hence, when you do that, you are erasing the image of God in you. It's a sacrilegious act. Okay, that's why it's a mortal sin. So anyhow. Uh, he's not allowed to touch any of that stuff. So then, as he's going through all of this, if he is contaminated, somebody dies in his presence, what must he do? He must go to jail, and he doesn't get 200 bucks. He has to start all over. So if you, have, if you 
said, you took a vow to be a Nazarite for seven years, and you're on year six, nine months into it, and this happens, you reset. Back to the very beginning. The temporary one, yes. This is all about the temporary Nazarite. We're not talking about the one who took a lifelong vow. Only the temporary one. This was going on in this chapter. Isn't that ubiquitous? I mean, isn't that strange? That it's, why? It's again the same principle. God's insistence on holiness. How extreme it is. How radical it is. How different they will be from all other nations around them. Even in things that seem so... not really important. In the grand scheme of things. If you're in the wilderness, you have other things to worry about than a temporary vow to Nazarite. If you're taking it from your end as a human being, that would not be the top three things that come to your priority, to your mind as priorities goes. But in God's mind, it is. It is because, precisely because he takes holiness so seriously. So often, for instance, you start something, you get really close, and it fails. You know, I take the train to go to Irvine. And it happened to me at least three times where I get there, I lock my car, I run down the stairs, and the train is still there, the doors are open, I bang on the door, and the train just takes off. I miss my train. You know, this is where I am tempted to enter into a very robust conversation with God. But to realize, again, through this door that was closed, God is talking to me. It's the center of the whole battle. It's a reset. I'm going to be late. Okay, what does that mean? You've got to trust God even when you're late. You've got to trust God even when you think you failed. You've got to trust God even when you think you cannot do it any other way. That's the calling. Not only does he have to reset, but he has an offering to do. He needs to do a reparation offering for something he didn't commit. So, if anything, this is teaching us the two aspects, the two sides of a sin. There's the objective side, the side that has to do with the object. And there's the subjective side, the side that has to do with the subject. So objective and subjective does not mean what most people think it means. Objective as in the true reality of things, and subjective my own opinion of it. These are a deformation of the anthropological concepts of an ob- objective and subjective. Objective and subjective are both about reality and truth. It's just the perspective is different. Objective means as regards to the object. Subjective is as regards to the subject. So you take two folks who are part of an experience, something that they're both living. Right? Um, Take, for instance, the bride and her father through a wedding. He paid for it, she didn't. Very different perspectives on what happened. Objectively, objectively, when you look at a sin, when we commit a sin, who are we injuring? Who is the object of that act? There is the penultimate object, which could be the person to whom we have have injured, but the ultimate object is God. When you measure the effect of a sin by its object, the greater the holiness of the object, the greater is the sin. Yeah? So for instance, suppose I have a kid who is seven years old, coming from a poor family, and a rich man. And I steal a dollar from the seven-year-old kid and a dollar from the rich man. 
Is the dollar the same? Well, yes, yes. The dollar is the same. It's the dollar, right? The dollar, the, the thing. It's the same object, isn't it? Right? But is it the same sin? Why? Because of to whom I've done it to, right? In the case of the little kid, it's a much bigger issue than it is to the rich man, who may not even notice. So, when we break a vow we took with God, who are we injuring? God's honor. God's name. Hence, the sin is to be measured by God's holiness. And its impact is absolutely enormous. This is why the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the greatest evil that could ever be committed. Because there are people who've, who went through, who've gone through torture much worse than the cross. That is absolutely true. But nobody's holiness measures to that of Jesus. His holiness is infinite. Hence, that sin is infinite. You understand? Okay. Subjectively, it is the way I live it. I'm going through it. I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing it. When we are beginners in our faith, we experience everything mostly subjectively as they relate to us. Jesus knew that, and that's what he told us. If you want to be first, what do you do? You go last. Because when you go last, what are you saying? Who is last? My subjective experience, my subjective appreciation of things is now last. Meaning, it counts less. God is getting me out of me. He's getting me out of myself and focusing me on Him. And that's, in a nutshell, the entire journey of faith. To get out of me and live in God. So your spiritual maturity isn't measured by how many prayers you say. It is measured by where is your own subjective. Do you live everything according to you? That's the question. That's why Lent is so good. Because when you deny yourself food to the point where it hurts, what are you training yourself to do? You're training yourself in denying me. And the denial of you will not bring about humility. Don't assume that just because you're doing this that you get humility. There's nothing you can do about that. You can go on not eating for the rest of your life and you will not grow one inch in humility. All you're doing is telling God, I'm serious. That's all. That, that's all you're doing. You're saying, God, I'm really serious. Now please give me humility because I can't have it on my own. But by denying yourself, you're saying, yeah, I want to be last. If somebody comes and talks to you, you know, with a 16 by 24, if you can not get angry, that's a huge battle you just won. And if you can rejoice, you're a lot closer to where you need to be. But if somebody comes and criticizes you, says something about the fact that you're talking too loudly, or you're talking in church and someone turns around and shush you, and you're now all upset and you spend the whole mess fuming over how could that... Well, good luck with that. Did you understand what I'm saying to you? Yeah? That's the journey of faith. That's how you show true fruits in your life. And that's how you glorify God in heaven. By these acts. All right. Um, I can tell you, for instance, that Queen Helena uh, had taken a Nazarite vow. 
uh, of seven years. At the end of that period, she accidentally became contaminated and to, had to renew her vow for another seven years. So she did for 14. Maybe this is what God wanted for her to do. I'm not talking about that Queen Helena. Very good point. It's uh, in, in, um, a Queen Helena of an, ancient, of an older period. Yeah. So, if you go back and reread these three chapters, you will see that God, in his wisdom and mercy, is teaching Israel about holiness, about obedience, about willingness to do what is right, even when you think it isn't right for you, and to submit in all things and in all ways to his plan and not to your plan, which is exactly what he expects us to do today in our own lives. All right, we'll, uh, we'll um, finish with a word of prayer and we'll take some questions. Please stand. Yes, go ahead. Uh, the question is when you're cooking and you're eating, it all depends what you're eating it for. If you're tasting the food, it's obviously not a sin because it's an act of charity. You want your food to taste good for others. If you're munching along as you're cooking, it's a sin of gluttony. Yes. Because the St. Thomas Aquinas explains this very, very well. Our life must be ordered. And there is time under the heavens for everything. A time to eat and a time not to eat. When we eat constantly and munch constantly, it's a form of disorder. And therefore, we are essentially giving ourselves to food instead of giving ourselves to discipline. And in that regard, it is a disorder and we should not do that. That's what is being intended. Now, is that a mortal sin if you just took two bites of things? I don't, I, I'm not one to tell you if it is or it isn't. Because remember, gluttony can also be committed venially. Right? In its extreme form, it is mortal. But you can commit a lot of these sins venially. Right? So, be aware of this. And understand the role that food plays in our lives and how we have to control it. That's important. Yes. A mortal sin is an act that you commit with knowledge, with intent... And who's, who, which is uh, severe enough to cut you from the life of grace. So effectively, there is no grace in your soul. All the, all the merits you received are now suspended. None of your prayers are heard other than praise of conversion and repentance. And if you were to die in that state, you go to hell. Is that clear enough? Yes. Okay, first of all, the curse was not about death. The curse was about sterility. Yes. Uh, were there accounts in Scripture where a woman was cursed and she was sterile? Absolutely. Micah, the wife of David. Now, I didn't go to the priest, but when David brought the, ta- the, the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, he danced before the Ark. And his wife saw him and despised him for dancing before the Ark. And just because she did that, God closed her womb and she never conceived. Absolutely. And it is just as true about our lives today. To think that everything that happens to you and me are simply due to natural causes is a form of heresy. To think that earthquakes and rain and disasters happen just because of natural causes is a heresy. It is called naturalism or positivism or materialism or Americanism. All of these are heresies which are named by the encyclicans of the Holy Father, whereby we do not ascribe to God the ultimate end of things, or we do not think He's responsible for everything that happens. So just the same for us today. Yeah? Yes. 
Yes, when they were consecrated in the end of the book of Exodus, the Shekinah came and consecrated the tent and not even Moses could stay. He had to get out. And then the Shekinah was abiding. The presence of God stayed, at which point it became holy. Yes, the, the presence of God. So between the two cherubim on top of the tabernacle, God dwelt in, in a theophany, in a, uh, if you will, spiritual presence or angelic presence. He was there, and he was there all the way through until um, Ezekiel the priest was given a vision in the book of Ezekiel where he goes, where, where he was in Babylon, but uh, God transports him to Jerusalem and shows him how the 70 elders had a secret room underneath the temple. And in that room, there were many loathsome things painted on the wall, and the 70 were bowing to them. They were worshiping false gods beneath the temple. And once he saw that, he, God showed him how the Shekinah, Ikabod, left, departed from the temple. And that's why when Jesus came, the third temple, the temple of, um, the, the, that Herod built, the Holy of Holy was empty. The ark wasn't there, and the Shekinah wasn't there, right? And that's when he told them, behold, your house is, um, is, is empty, because he himself was being kicked out, right? He is the presence of God incarnate, and they were kicking him out. But the presence wasn't there. And just in the same way um, as it happened in the temple, when a couple is married, and their marriage has been blessed in a church. What brings them together, what binds them together is the Holy Spirit. So the way a couple grows closer isn't by trying to get closer to each other directly. Instead, they should think of themselves as being the basis of a triangle. The, the summit being God. And all they have to do is on their end get closer to God. And as a result, they get close to each other. So what binds them together is the Holy Spirit. However, when a couple says, I am going to use contraception, when a couple says, I'm not going to obey the church, even in one of the commandments of the church, one, the Holy Spirit then does what happened in the temple. Because remember, the family is the domestic church. It is the temple of God. The Holy Spirit then departs. And since there is no vacuum in a spiritual life, excuse me, the spirit of deceit, the spirit of lies, comes and enters that home. And the fruits then are seen in the children. Rebellious children who will not obey their parents and will cause them grief. What we, what we are undergoing, what we're going through in this time, isn't the fruit of the, the time. It's not because suddenly the children of today are so different from the children of yesterday. That's an explanation of the ignorant who thinks somehow this generation knows more than what the past generation did. That's complete nonsense. It's not corroborated by any fi- scientific fact. If anything, they know a lot less. They're barely able to form a proper sentence and their vocabulary is so restricted that it is laughable. No, it is simply the fruit of the, the life that the parents are leading. It's, it's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. Yes. Very good question. The question is, St. Peter spoke about women praying for their unfaithful husband. Why 
the opposite isn't mentioned. Why didn't he mention uh, men praying for their ungodly wives? Uh, Very, very simple. Because (laughs) it didn't happen as much. I mean, look at our church today, right? How many men do you see here whose ungodly wives are outside and their men are on their knees here? Not a lot. Of course. Is there something in the genes that women make her heart softer? Of course. Woman, I told you, God is sexist. He prefers women. It's absolutely obvious. Not just Our Lady. By your constitution as a woman, you are made to what? To receive life. So when you're pregnant, what is going on inside of you? There is a life that is not your own growing inside of you. Well, what are you? You're receptive to life inside of you that is not your own. Right? Meanwhile, your husband is watching rugby. All right? Well, think about prayer. What is prayer? It is the heart being receptive to a life that is not his own and being attentive to it. Now, who do you think is, has a greater facility to this? The guy watching rugby or the woman who can be pregnant? And this is why this tragedy of the century is when a woman decides that she must imitate man in order to prove her worth. That there is a greater worth for her to be a CIO than to be a mom. Because in doing so, she's losing on the greatest treasure that God wishes to give her. But absolutely, yeah, yes. What's the difference between the priesthood that is established now and the priesthood of the Levitical priesthood? Why is it that a priest can touch the holy species and not be struck dead? Because this priesthood is far superior to the old one. The old one was signed with the blood of bulls. This one is signed with the blood of Christ. And the priest acts in the person of Christ. So it is not the priest touching the species. It is Christ himself who is on the altar doing all these things. The priest has no power on his own to bring about the transformation of bread and wine into the body and blood, soul, and divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only Christ can do that. So in a real sense, there's only one priest, Jesus Christ. But he confers upon weak men that power because of his love. Yes. Deacons have consecrated hands. And even in the Latin rite today, you have lady who go back and forth and women who go back and forth to the tabernacle. And I just cringe every time I see this. Um, but uh, canonically, it is permitted because it is an extension of the hands of the priest. So it is still the priest that is doing all these actions through someone else. My problem with it all isn't theological. It's just purely from a pedagogical standpoint because we learn more with our eyes than with anything else. And as we see women going up and down to the, to the top, we are completely confusing the picture. The gender of Jesus Christ is absolutely essential. It is not optional. I can't... That's why you cannot have a woman as a priest. That's the only reason. You have to have a man who sacramentally represents Jesus. Because Jesus was incarnate as a man. And no, he wasn't incarnate as a man because it was a science of the time. All right? People will tell you, well, you know, Jesus was the fruit of his time. So he didn't... No. A, a guy goes around and telling people, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, is not somebody affected by the signs of the time. And, by the way, it's also a great sign of ignorance on the part of Western um, culture to think that the Easterners back then were not accustomed to women priests. 
they were very accustomed to women priests. Many of the temples had female priests. So that would not have been a shock to any one of them if there were female priests. That's a complete fabrication of this culture in our time. Be it as in many, not, 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 the Jew, not the Jews, but all around them. Right? The cult of Adonis, for instance, which was very famous, was all female. female yeah. There were female goddesses. I mean, they were used to this. They were not. They didn't have the problem we have. We're projecting on them a problem we have, which didn't exist back then. Be it as it may. The point is, from a pedagogical standpoint, we need to teach people about the faith by approximating as closely as possible what happened back then. That's why in the olden times they were railing around the, 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 the sanctuary to help us understand the sanctity. That's why there were gold altars and they would do the, 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 those who came before us would do everything they could to truly decorate the church with very precious metal to help us understand how glorious heaven is, etc., etc. So it's just at the peda- pedagogically. The same reason I have issues with people receiving on the both species in the Latin way. There is nothing intrinsically wrong with it from a theological standpoint. If you understand the covenant and you understand what happened at the, at the supper where there were, he blessed the, the, the bread first and the cup last, you could walk through it. But most people have no knowledge of any of that stuff. And when they receive it, they receive the, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. And I have people who are confused. I have people who came here who are confused, who thought they have to receive both to have a full communion. And the children are getting confused because we repeat constantly, the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, the body of Christ, the blood of Christ. What do you think will stick with them? This or some abstract understanding of the um, transubstantiation? That's why when we go to the Latin rite, I told my wife and my kids, you only receive the host. You don't receive from the cup. For that specific reason, it's important to preserve the truth of the faith. What we're doing right now is not. It doesn't help. So, that's, that's why. Fadi had a question in the back. Fadi, it is. It's always. The, the Shekinah is in the form of a cloud. The, the, pillar of, of, uh, the pillar of fire and the pillar of... Um, in a cloud during the day. That's also the presence of God. The Shekinah, the guiding. Yeah, absolutely. That's why... When we speak being in the cloud, we really mean being in the spirit. Well, no, no, hold on. This was when they were walking. Everybody could see it. But inside the tent, the description was never given. Just that it was there. Some probably light or something. The holy fire, that was mostly in the temple. Uh, The holy fire was lit from heaven by the Shekinah. And that was the only source they used to light all the other fires. I don't think it was the same, though, in the tent. But... um, be it as it may, in a, in a tent, they had one source that was used to light all the other ones. and was also called the holy fire, meaning it was a, a consecrated fire. So everything about it was consecrated. You can just use any old fire from outside. That's the intent. Correct. It was never turned off. Just as here over the tabernacle, we have a candle that should never be turned off. Same idea. Hold, 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 just a second. You, you had a question. Very good. As long as it is with intention, there's no issues with it because you're receiving the body and blood, soul, and divinity into one action, which is very, very good. This is the best way to receive under both species. But receiving under one species is not, not a problem either because, you're, again, your mind is forced to think, I'm receiving all of Jesus, body, blood, soul, and divinity under this species. The problem comes when you separate the two. And you say the body when you give the host, and you say the blood when you give the cup, where, in fact, it is the body and blood, soul, and divinity in one case and body and blood, soul, and divinity in the other. 
And which then begs the question, if you're receiving the Lord, body, blood, soul, and divinity in one case, and the other, why are you receiving it twice? Are you receiving twice? Is it once? It's actually once. But you really need to understand the cedar meal and the way the blessing happened and the covenant was established at the cedar meal for you to figure out all everything I said. Most people have no understanding of any of that. So all they're getting is the body and the blood. And therefore, there is a conviction that is happening by repetition that if you don't receive under these both species, your communion is lacking. That is a problem of pedagogy. What are we teaching people? It's not about theology. It's about what we're teaching. And I'm telling you, we're teaching the kids to believe that, there is, that unless they receive, that, that there is only a body in the host and the blood is in the cup. And that is a problem. You understand? Yeah. You're exactly what happened to your daughter. The problem is that your, your explanation and my explanation are abstract. And they don't hold sway to physical action performed by our bodies. We learn more from our bodies than we learn from words. I am saying they're not doing it with, um, with the intent to teach people the true faith. So if you're interested to learn more about this, I do recommend you read the book called Peter Canisius. It is the, the, essentially the combined writings, it's a thick book, combined writings of, the, of a doctor of the church, St. Peter Canisius, who, is, who was present at the Council of Trent. And at the Council of Trent, which lasted 15 years, by the way, it was a miracle. Council of Trent was an absolute miracle. That issue of receiving on the both species was brought up. It was brought up by the king of Germany because he had two constituents. He had the Protestant constituent, which was rich and wealthy, and the Catholic one, which was poor. And he was fighting the Turks. And who, were going to, who's, who was going to underwrite the, the war? The Protestants. Now, Luther initiated reception of communion on both species because who only does it? The priest. His intent was to equalize the role of the priest with everybody else. He was doing away with the orders. So in the Protestant churches, they were doing it. And Catholics were under pressure, and so they brought it up to the Council of Trent requesting permission to receive communion on both species. And St. Canisius and others... Uh, learned theologians were dead set against it. They would not agree to it. And the interesting thing is that in countries where they allowed, like Holland and Germany, where they allowed the reception of the communion of both species, within one generation, faith in, uh, faith in the Eucharist was gone. So we have precedence for this in the church. This is not the first time they try something like this. And you've got to understand what is being done here. It was all part of the whole effort of having women priests and democratizing the church and having it's an F it's it's a fundamental rebellion called Americanism. I mean read the encyclicals of the fathers when he speaks of Americanism as a heresy. Yeah. There's nothing confusing about it. Most kids don't go to the Blessed Sacrament. It's only about five percent of your parish that go to the Blessed Sacrament and sit in front of Jesus. Most people don't even go there. You've got to realize that from a pedagogy standpoint, this is, by the way, only allowed here. This is the, the United States and Canada received a special um, uh, dispensation to do it. That's not the norm in the, in, the, in the Latin rite at all. If you go to Rome, you will not receive under both species, only under one, and on the tongue, and kneeling. We here receive the special dispensation to do it the way we do. So be, 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 be mindful of this. The fact that they have exposition of the Blessed Sacrament is a wonderful thing, 
but it doesn't shouldn't take away from the fact that the mass is being celebrated with an undercurrent that is not for the building of the people. Yes, absolutely. Yes, so the one who's listening to your confession is Jesus Christ. He stands also in a confessional in a, in a person of. Okay, that's that's the point. So yes, you, first of all, let's be clear. Anytime you've you you are you have the conviction that you've committed a sin. On the spot, right there and then, if you're feeling remorse, right there and then, ask God for forgiveness. Right there. You don't have to wait to go to confession. Right there on the spot, ask God for, for forgiveness. God will hear you. Especially if it's a venial sin, right? Okay. So then what do you go to confession for? If God can hear you, outside of the confessional, what do you go to confession for? Yes, yes. But again, I'm saying to you right now, I want you to really understand this. If you've committed a sin and you're sincerely sorry for what you've done and you ask God to forgive you and you die right there, God heard your prayer. All right? God is merciful. He's going to say, sorry, Charlie, you didn't go to confession. I want you to understand there is more in confessional than that. You hinted on one part of it, the penance piece. We're going to come back to it in a minute. But there's more to this. Yes. Correct. But why did he do that? Because, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I know. The answer is, is, is in the confiteor, in the prayer that is said in the Latin right at the beginning of the Mass. Slowly, slowly, slowly. Don't go fast. I want you to slow down. I confess. Stop, 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 stop. Almighty God. Now, stop right there. Did you ever ask yourself this question, why? We say, I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters. Why to you, my brothers and sisters? That's the key. When we commit a sin, okay, again, it's not our faith isn't Jesus and me. Get it? Our faith isn't about me and Jesus standing in a silo. And there is 50 billion other silos that I never get to see. And I'm not affected by them. And I don't affect them. What do we said over and over again about the church? We are a family. A family. Your brother commits a sin. It affects you. Your brother goes through a divorce. You're affected. Yes? Look at it this way. Somebody on the 78 decides to tailgate. And the one car in front of him breaks, and he, and now they have an accident. You're driving 30 miles back. What happens to you? You're affected. Sin works the same. So when you sin, you just don't have, you have not just sinned against God, you've sinned against his bride, your mother. You've hurt your mother. You really think God, your father, at home, you went home and you slapped your mom. And you go to your dad and say, I'm really sorry that I did that. But you never go say that to your mother. You think your, your father's going to listen to you? You're serious about that? You get it? You got to go say sorry to mom. Yeah? Okay. Whoever sins, you're forgiven, are forgiven. And whoever sins, you bound, are bound. Because mom may say to you, no, you're not sincere. She knows you really well. Back to your point. Mother knows best. She knows you. 
So if you're really serious about the faith, you understand the faith the way the Syrophoenician woman understood it, you know you need to go to the church and confess your sins and ask the church for forgiveness, not just God. That is why, yes, God will forgive you on the spot, but He will look at you and say, if you're sincere, you got to go back and ask forgiveness. So what does that mean? You went home and slapped your brother. You go to Mass, you go to confession, and you're telling the priest, and I slapped my, my brother. The priest is bound to ask you what? Well, how many times? Hopefully once. Okay, good. Hopefully once. But what is he supposed to ask you? Okay, here's the deal. This guy went to confession and said, Father, uh, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. Yes, my son, uh, I stole a pig. I stole a pig. He's confessing he stole a pig. So he must show what? How, does you sh- how do you show remorse? You need to go repair it if you can. So he asked him, are you, did you give it back? He says, no, Father, I, I can't. Why? Well, I've eaten it. Okay, are you willing to do what? Reparation. And the man said, sure. What shall I do? And the priest said, give $50. All right. And the man went away. Next week he was back. Bless me, Father, if I have sinned. Yes, my son, I stole a pig. So that is what? Somebody who's not yet serious. But weren't you here last week? Yes, I was. What, didn't I tell you to make reparation? Yes, Father, I did. But you told me to give 50, so I gave 100 and stole another one. Because <laughs> it's cheap, right? So the point is you must show sincere repentance. So you have to go to your brother, ask for forgiveness, and make sure it doesn't happen again. So not just the priest and the church Whomever you've wronged, you must go and ask forgiveness too. Yeah? Yeah. We affect each other by our sins and by our life of grace. So we should offer. So remember, when you go to a Latin Mass and you're praying this prayer, and I ask you, my brothers and sisters, you are in this Mass because God wanted you to be there that day with these brothers and sisters of yours. So when you say these words, you better mean them. Otherwise God will not take you seriously. And then make sure that you offer your Mass for all these brothers and sisters of yours who are present that day and forgive them from the bottom of your heart for anything that may have happened to you because of them. Take those words seriously. Back to what we were saying earlier. Yeah? Okay, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Sin flows in our, through our nature. So God said, I will visit the sins of the fathers on their children down to four generations. A whole household back then, four generations, were all affected by the sins. So hence prayers for the healing the family. As I said earlier, about the, 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 the conference we're going to have is all about healing the family from what we do to each other. Yeah? You had a question? Uh, I, my own personal choice, again, for reasons of pedagogy, I don't receive from a Eucharistic minister. Always from the priest or a deacon. Why? Is there something wrong with the Eucharistic minister? Absolutely not. God bless them. They're, doing, they're sincere and they, they really want to truly help the church. God bless them. I have no problem. It's not, it's not anything against them. But I want my children to understand the things of the faith. And again, we do this rep- rep- repetitively over and over again. If I allow my children and myself to receive from a woman 
I am putting myself in danger of confusing who am I receiving communion from. Because I'm weak. I'm not going to pretend that just by studying theology is going to hold me in place. No, I'm weak, like everybody else. So, by keeping my focus on the priest, I keep my focus on Jesus. It helps me. That's why. Fair? Pedagogy. P-E-D-A-G-O-G-Y. All right. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.